podcast i look at one of the works of philip k dick and give some of my thoughts and commentary on them in this episode i am continuing my look at dick's 1957 novel eye in the sky eye in the sky is a novel of the cold war surveillance state but it's also a novel of false realities and how each of us holds within us a delusional view of reality the conclusion that dick seems to come to in this novel is that all of us or at least most of us live in a distinct mental realm that cannot be known to outside observers. Which is impossible to know, or with impossible to know what's inside someone's head, Dick decides, decided to write a novel in which a group of characters live through the worldview of others after falling through a particle def- deflator. The result is a fascinating and quite brilliant novel of suspicion amid shifting realities. As I talked about in other episodes, it's also a novel of utopias. In many of the worlds that these characters inhabit, a utopia is created through their, from their point of view, a perfect world. Now, at least two of these are also dystopias, so he kind of does two utopias and two dystopias. Um, now, by doing this, Dick may be casting doubt on the entire concept of utopia and showing that the line between a utopia and a dystopia is quite um, thin. In fact, if each of us created an ideal world, it, the result would probably be a terror for most of the rest of the people who participate in it. This novel also has a lot to tell us about feminist politics, about racial politics. Um, We have a black character who finds fake reality is actually an improvement over the real world in which he is subject to the violence and discrimination of Jim Crow America. We have a diversity of female characters here as well, from a professional woman who is uh, a victim of violence and a, a, a paranoid as a result of that, we have uh, a liberal woman who is very interested in leftist politics and is seen by others as kind of hippy-dippy and, and even as an outright radical. And then we have a traditional Victorian puritanical doting mother. So in this way, this is a very character-driven story. And we have some of Dick's most well-formed characters um, compared to any of his other early novels. Um, the way this novel structured you, around eight characters who suffer an accident together and then have to experience each other's internal monologue or their, how they see the world, how each of them see the world, allows him to develop these characters individually. And we get a really good look at, at probably six or seven. I, actually, I think with one exception, really, with the exception of uh, David Pritchett, who's Edith Pritchett's son, the son of this doting mother we get actually a good window into all these these characters. So this is, uh, in this sense, in, sense, in the sense of character development, this is novels a step forward for Philip Dick. Now, one thing I want to talk about in this episode, um, thematically, that I didn't say much about in the previous episodes because it doesn't really come up until you get to the last, I guess, third of the novel, is the question of mental illness. Now, it's sort of there in the backdrop of all of these worlds, but it really comes off in the third world that these characters inhabit, that created by Joan Reese, a paranoid. But in fact, all four of these fantasy worlds seem to suggest some level of mental illness. 
Now, reason for this is because they're all based on how these four creators, the four creators of their, these worlds, actually see the world. And the fact that these worlds are fundamentally irrational, that, they, the, that they're bizarre, right? In one case, you have a geocentric universe where God is real. In one world, you have um, a universe in which anything that is distasteful or offensive can be abolished by the people living within it. So you can have a completely clean and pristine world. One world the one of Joan Reese is is where is the world of a paranoid where everything happens for a reason and there's no randomness and everything is a result of conspiracy and then we have one in which we have a basically it's the mind view of a communist but it's presented to us in such a way that it's uh, the most radical dystopian view of capitalism imaginable so that's even a delusional view of how the world really functions even if you're a critic of capitalism the world we have here of uh, kind of, a, of an ideal capitalist capitalism from a communist point of view is a dystopia and it's, you know, it, it, it's just insane. It's crazy. You have workers on the streets rioting constantly. You have gangsters running the show. And, and we'll, we'll talk about the details of that in the final episode of this series, the next one. But anyways, my point is that they're all fundamentally irrational, even if you think there's some truth in all of them, right? Like truth such as, you know, maybe people, a lot of people really do believe in God. A lot of people do think we should take efforts to reform and clean up sin in the world. A lot of people do think that there are conspiracies and people are out to get them. And there are people out there who want to hurt others. And in fact, we, one can be a critic of capitalism. But when given with these four cases, we have extreme examples of it, right, that really drive us towards assuming that maybe these people are mentally ill. That's why we have these weird ways of looking at it. Maybe Dick is saying that we all are mentally ill and this mental illness manifests in our own perverse and crazy ways of looking at the world, whether it's paranoia or an inability to face anything dirty or distasteful. Um, and perhaps if time had allowed, Dick would have written four more worlds. I think that would have been really nice. That would have been an interesting expansion on this novel, or we could get a sequel where we get Jack Hamilton and Marsha Hamilton's and... Uh, David Pritchett's. I mean, what? how does a child look at the world? That would have been really fan uh, wonderful if he had done that. Uh, I don't know if Dick had the capacity to, to do this at this point in his career. He never really, he has some stories in which he writes from the perspective of children, but he doesn't do it often enough um, to show that he really could have gotten into David Pritchett's head. But that would have been interesting to see, I mean, how do children really see the world? You know, Santa Claus really exists or that kind of thing. Our parents really, I guess in the father thing, you have this image of the parents as a tyrannical force. Anyways, what it comes down to is that each of us really does see the world a little bit differently. It is one thing, for instance, to have a principled critique of capitalism. It's quite another to see the world as Charlie McFay does, as a constant conflict between rioters and police, or to really believe that capitalists experiment, experiment dangerous drugs on live humans, right? Now, of course, again, you know, there's, there's, of course, these conspiracy theories in the 60s of this in the there might have been some truth to it. I really don't I haven't looked into the truth of these, but certainly it's, it was in the kind of the, the talk in radical circles was that like drugs were put in the inner cities by the CIA really to destroy radical movements. But here we have actually capitalists using human beings as, you know, live, you know, subjects for human, you know, experimentation. Now, one of the more frightening conclusions of this novel is really that we're all solipsists and we all see the world differently and that we really can't communicate with each other. 
This is something Dick plays with in other stories as well. This radical individualism creates a space for certain freedoms. We see this in stories like Misadjustment and The World She Wanted. And I'll talk about Misadjustment, uh, I think, in, in a few episodes from now. But what this, the problem with this is it seems to destroy any hope for solidarity, joint struggle, and, and cooperation. And we have a few examples here of people working together, but they work together really for their own personal benefits and other personal reasons. There's not a broader solidarity here. And I think that's what's kind of frustrating and, and a bit unfortunate about this novel is it's, its bleakness really comes in this fact that we really can't ever sit down and work with one another because all of us see the world in such fundamentally radically different ways. So I guess what we find uh, is a rather thin line between radical subjectivity and even radical individualism and mental illness. And I, that's certainly the case when we look at Joan Rees, but I think in the case of all of these characters that we have here, there is a, a point Dick's trying to make about how our own subjectivities can be interpreted by others as mental illness. I don't know if there's a broader point to be made about mental illness. Dick was right in a time when a lot of people were talking about mental illness as as kind of rooted in social relations, right? Because um, like Irving, Irving Goffman, for instance, who wrote about asylums, you know, he was critical of asylums. But there were other writers, too, who questioned whether there were absolute clinical definitions of mental illness. In fact, claiming that like that they really were more a product of a sick society. Anyways, back to the, the story. Um, so just just to uh, refresh where we are in this tale, in the first part, parts of this series, we, we talked about the first the first one and a half, I guess, of these mental realms that we, we go through. We end up going through four, but the last two are rather rushed, un unfortunately. And I don't know, Dick just didn't have space if he wanted to say more about these or if he really did want to rush them. I, I kind of think it almost works in the novel because you get this sense of, of the macro verse that they're in actually breaking down. And so, you know, things do become a little bit more rushed and it's, and it's less of a ponderous story, more of a, you know, much more action-packed, I guess, towards the end. So it does kind of work, but... You know, I, I still think it's a shame we don't get a little glimpse of all eight different mental realms, for one for each character. But anyways, it starts out Jack Hamilton, our main character, is losing his job because the company security officer, Charlie McFay, has identified his wife as a security threat because of her affiliation with leftist politics. Um, now, he, this Charlie and the Hamiltons decide to uh, celebrate the end of his career and the new stage in his career by going out for drinks. But first they visit the Bevatron particle deflator. And during a tour of this, there's an accident. They are all thrown into it along with five other people. And this brings them into the first of the mental realms. They wake up into a hospital. Most of the victims are fine. The most seriously damaged is a man named Sylvester, a former war veteran. Um, the Hamiltons go home with a woman named Joan Reese. And weird things begin to happen. Because he is rude to Joan Rees, he is punished with a swarm of locusts. This proves that the world they're experiencing is not the one remember, they remember. And they also start to feel that the world is different and odd and something's a bit off about everything they're going through. They realize that one of the big differences in this world is that prayers seem to be answered. Bill Laws, the tour guide, for instance, he, went, he was in the accident as well, but he has a charm that can cure injuries. Jack Hamilton decides to start looking for his new job. He doesn't quite know what's going on. He, he knows something's off, but he, he has no reason not to believe this is the world. He just thinks something has changed in it. 
He visits his friend, Dr. Tillingford, and the interview they go into is really bizarre. And, and Jack's told he's going to be paid in credits towards salvation, not in money. You don't need money because everything comes directly through prayer. He's told that the only science that matters now is theophonics, the science of communicating with God. And basically, we're taught here that God is real in this world. And it's particularly this God of Second Babism, a new religious movement. Instead of communism, the boss is worried about the sexual purity of his applicants. On his way out, he's interviewed by a man named Brady, who basically tests him to a test of faith. Jack loses this, in part because Brady's able to pray for help, to answer questions, and he even gets help from an angel who comes down and, and is able to speak directly to them. Jack goes to a bar where he sees McFate, and they discuss the, the, the role of a bar in a, in a moralistic religious world in which God really exists. And, he, and he, they conclude that the bar is there to really prove because uh, you need sin to prove virtue. You basically need a dialectic relationship. Laws is there as well with a prostitute named Silky. Silky tries to invite Jack to be alone with her, but instead they investigate the bar and learn more about how prayers work by jerry-rigging the cigarette machine to make an infinite amount of brandy. Hamilton and McFay go to, a, to an old non-Second Bab church. Basically, I think it's McFay's old church, and they see an Irish priest there. They get the Irish priest to bless their umbrella with holy water, and then they give a prayer, and then they rise up into the sky on the umbrella. They rise up and they see the world from the heavens. They see that the world is geocentric. They see that heaven and hell are real places. And they also see a large eye overlooking the universe. And this is sort of where the title of the story comes from, Eye in the Sky. But I want to say again that eye, the eye in the sky exists in all four of these stories. In fact, fifth, if you include the real world, in the sense that we have surveillance states in every single example we're given. Now the umbrella, as it gets higher, catches fire. They fall to earth. And they're completely fine. They land near Cheyenne, Wyoming. So Hamilton, he prays for money, and then he goes to visit a central temple of Second Baptism. McFay, meanwhile, goes back to California. In the temple, he learns more about the religion, but also, most importantly, he learns that Arthur Sylvester is one of those identified as saved and going to heaven. Hamilton, therefore, realizes that Sylvester is the creator of this world. He sees... He goes back and he sees that Marcia and Bill Laws have physically changed based on Sylvester's assumption of radical women and feminists and black people. He goes to the hospital and to battle Sylvester. They all work together. Sylvester calls on divine help, but eventually they're able to knock him out. But instead of going back to normal, they seem to have entered a new world where there's no gender. Marcia's sex organs are, for instance, gone. This world, new world is created by Edith Pritchett, and Jack Hamilton realizes this right away. She abolishes the categories of things she does not like, purifying the world. For instance, she abolishes the Soviet Union just by demand, just by willing it. This is a very uncreative world. In fact, all Edith can really do is take away things and to kind of cleanse things, but she can't create. Jack Hamilton begins to make his way into this new world. He visits his friend Tillingford about his new job, which has changed now. Now he learns they're using electronics to facilitate the overall moral well-being of the lower classes. He goes into an old bar, which has been renamed. The old bar has been renamed now. It's actually been transformed into a folksy cafe that it serves beer, but it's, it's a much more tame place. He sees Silky there, and she's still sort of a sex worker, but she doesn't really know what sex is anymore. I think Edith didn't quite know what to do with it because she abolished the category of prostitute, but kept the Silky alive. So she's just sort of there. Uh, but now she's sort of friends with Marsha. One thing in this world is everyone is sort of friendly and chummy and and. You know, so I guess animosity in general has been taken out of this world by Edith. 
Now Jack goes home with Silky and he learns that Marcia likes this new world and is actually supporting the changes. She thinks these are good improvements. This really angers Jack Hamilton. Um, he also learns that Bill Law seems to like this world because he gets, he's gotten a pretty good job at one of the few industries that's remaining in this world, soap making. Most other industries have been abolished as distasteful. Angry at his wife, he tries to have a tryst with Silky, but he fails because sex no longer exists in this world. Eventually, Edith abolishes Silky and all women like her completely. Edith also abolishes the category of cats, which angers Jack into action. He forms a conspiracy with Charlie McFaith, Joan Reese, and Arthur Sylvester. These four plan to work together to knock Edith out using chloroform, hoping that this will stop this delusion and allow them to wake up in the Bevatron particle deflator, you know, and, and kind of live, return to the real world. All right, so that's all the stuff I covered in the previous episodes. Um, today I'm just going to look at two chapters, I think. We're getting actually towards the end of the novel. Um, but, yeah, we'll just look at, we'll look at chapters uh, 13 and 14. No, check that. 12, yeah, 12 and 13 is what we'll look at. We'll do the 14, 15, and 16 in the final episode of this series. So, um, they, they decide to all go on a picnic and this is another thing that really comes out of Edith Pritchett's mind you know for her everything is nice and sweet and folksy and friendly and so they're all going to go on a, a picnic together all the all the friends so it's Jack Hamilton Marsha Hamilton the Pritchett Charlie McFay and Joan Reese are all heading on this just they're all driving on the highway to go to this picnic Jack tries to get Edith to he, well, he starts playing with this idea of abolition and he wants to, you know, see what he can do and what effect that will have if he, he can get Edith to abolish certain categories. And just as a jape against McFay, he tries to get Edith to abolish Irish, the Irish as a category. And, you know, McFay is able to stop it and by basically saying, well, like Joyce and Oscar Wilde were, were Irish or something. Well, Oscar Wilde would have offended her, right? So... Anyways, he, he lists some great artists who are Irish, and then that saves the category of the Irish. Now, they notice along the way a lot of stuff that Pritchett would find odious, such as factories, visual blights. And as, as they emerge, Jack points them out, or Edith sees them, and then she abolishes them. So as they're driving along, she's just abolishing all these things she doesn't like. And remember, she abolishes whole categories. So if she gets rid of dirty factories, dirty factories are going everywhere in the world, everywhere in the universe. Now, the people in the car offer up Edith various recommendations of things to abolish, and many of which she just fulfills without, fulfills without much thought. She just immediately says, yeah, yeah, I agree. That's horrible. Those are disgusting. So get rid of them. So as they're driving, Edith is actively reconstructing the world around her, and it's a really wild scene, and it's a lot of fun that Dick has with it. Now, around noon, they reach the park, and Marsha catches Jack preparing the drugs and the chloroform, and she's opposed to the plan to knock Edith out, and I, I think by this point, she realizes that Edith is going a bit too far in her transformation of the world. She's not just cleaning up a few distasteful things. She's actually kind of fundamentally restructuring uh, everything. And she's also fearful that she may try to abolish Jack if she gets catches them. And this is how she can defend herself, right? She can just abolish people. So she, she doesn't really want him to do it because she thinks it's a, a threat to them. Now, it's not entirely certain how death works here. I, I think at this point no one's died, so they don't know the effect of, of death yet. But as they sit down to eat, Edith continues her reforms, abolishing dampness, 
abolishing green in the oceans to make all the oceans blue. She abolishes seagulls, cows, anything offensive to her or increasingly to others. Anything that's mentioned by others, she just wills to be abolished. Eventually, the group pushes her to destroy more and more of the essential aspects of the world, including basic elements. So this is what starts to lead to the breakdown of this particular delusional uh, mental realm is it starts to be broken down at the fundamental level, like certain types of uh, chemicals and these certain chemical relations. And I, I think at one point, like sodium chloride is destroyed. So there's no salt in the universe. And you know, carbon dioxide and everything. So she's, you know, all these different elements that anyone mentions, she starts to abolish. This gradually destroys Edith's control over their world. And then Jack wakes up in a new nondescript world. So that Edith's world breaks down basically because she overdoes this abolition thing. And anyways, it's, it's a really fun scene. The whole picnic scene is a lot, is great just because it's, it's kind of wild. And it should, it's Dick's really having fun with this. But it also allows them to escape this realm without challenging Edith directly. And I guess here could be, I guess, the end. You could interpret this as the end result of radical utopianism, where any enemy of the state is abolished or destroyed. The end result of that is you, you destroy the whole state. So it's a, self, it's a self-destructive cycle of, of reform and purification. But anyways, they wake up in a new realm. They don't wake up in the Bevatron, so it's clear that they, they've entered into another world. And the voice of Joan Reese dominates this world, and she can speak to them kind of as a eye in the sky, as a universal force. And she declares that she will observe them at every moment of their, of their lives. So she creates the ultimate surveillance state. And the reason she does this is she's a paranoid. She wants to understand everything that happens to protect herself, she wants to understand every connection, every scheme, every plot in the, in the universe. So for that, she's going to need a total dominant surveillance state. And that's what she establishes when she takes power. Anyway, so they're in this new world, which clearly isn't the real one. Um, Joan Reese orders them into the car and she tells them that she'll drive them back to Belmont where they belong. And so she also has this sort of idea of cleaning up the world and rearranging it. So she's a bit like Edith Pritchett in this way. But the reason she's doing this is because she's a total paranoid and she wants to have build up the walls around her to really protect herself. So in the car, Jack Hamilton confronts Reese, telling her that this is not the real world. Reese confesses that she knows this and that she's in control. But instead of creating a, a strange world like, like Sylvester and Pritchett did, she's going to create a perfect copy of the real world. But the, with one important change is that she can see everything and she can dominate everything and she can uh, manage the world. So everything's been restored to how it was before the accident, she claims. And she's been waiting for the chance to do this since the accident and since she learned how this world works. So she actually plotted to be in a position to seize control after the Edith Pritchett world um, broke down. So as the Hamiltons return to their home, Marsha recommends that they just accept this change, that nothing is going to change the fact that she's in control and that she's in total power. Things will go back to how they should be, according to her. And although Reese wants power over them, she says this is just the price they need to pay for their security. And so obviously we have the typical logic of the surveillance state of the authoritarian political party, whatever you want to say, right? The, the 
totalitarian system that says, yes, you're not going to have any freedom, but you're going to get out of this a perfectly managed, ordered, rational world. So they go inside the house and they find that Nini Numcat, you know, is back. She, but she's been turned inside out, still alive, dragging himself across the floor. It's pretty gross. And Jack has to kill the suffering cat. And they realize that Reese must have done this because she hated cats. This was something Dick established earlier in the novel when Reese first visited the Hamilton home in the first Romantic Realm, Sylvester's world. She said she didn't like cats. Hamilton was mad at her for this, and this is what brought the swarm of locusts. So this hatred of cats led her to destroying the cat. And not only destroying it, but you know, making it suffer and, and mutilating it, forcing Jack to kill his own cat. So this world will be just as bad as the others, it's quickly revealed, because despite Reese's promise to return everything back to normal, she is in fact a paranoid and a sociopath. They close the blinds and decide to move to the basement. And this sparks a conversation about Silky, who they think should be restored in this world, maybe restored to her old position. Um, maybe it's a prostitute or whatever. I think we don't see the bar in this world, because they don't spend much time in Joan Reese's mental realm but they do talk about silky so she sort of is is there at least in theory in fact she is there in more ways than one because the spider the the basement is infused with spider webs it's completely infested with spider webs they can't even go down the stairs fully because of the spider webs he tries climbing back up but it was thrown down in the stairway he can't get up the stairs at all so it's, it's spider webs it's it's almost like a dream world you know if you ever have those dreams where you, you can't get somewhere you need to go right that's a kind of a classic dream that's sort of what happens to jack here bill laws arrives to at the house and helps martha get down this get up the steps with the help of david pritchett when jack gets up he reports that silky is downstairs but he's in a new form and that form is as this giant spider creature law says that he'll help Jack board up and lock away the basement. So we're in another very, very bizarre world. There's another example of Dick having fun with a setting and, you know, the, the, the rules of, the, of this world. But this is, this is the world of a paranoiac, right? Where the basement is full of monsters, where there are conspiracies against you, where cats are plotting against you, right? So that's, that's the rules of this world. So any conclusion however irrational that we can come to based on this assumption that everything happens for a reason and everyone is out to get you in some way is what we're going to see at work here now joan reese insists that her world is 100 percent how it was before but of course she's crazy so she's not it's not going to be it's going to be a delusion like the others have been in fact the other people like sylvester really believed the world is geocentric and god answers prayers edith pritchard really believed that if you just try hard enough if you just pray hard enough or think hard enough you can make the world pure and clean once more through a force of will so in, from their own perspective none of these rules are irrational they all think they're perfect and and perfect reflections of how reality is it's only from other people's perspectives that it seems nuts um so that that gets us really to the climax of the novel um like I said, things really speed up toward, towards the end. There's three more chapters. Um, but I'll talk about those in the final episode of my extended review of Eye in the Sky. So thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments or your own opinions about Eye in the Sky or mental illness or how Dick deals with mental illness, please uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or leave a comment below or leave a review on iTunes. I really appreciate it. 
Um, and next time, I'll, I'll be back with the conclusion to Eye in the Sky. Come and my tired thoughts once That leaving dies, that leaving dies, that leaving dies.